Our song of response to this afternoon's sermon will be hymn 29, stanzas 1 and 2. We turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandment, commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith alone. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's almost at the center. 52 Lord's Days, 23rd Lord's Day, almost say, well, that's close enough. Center of the catechism, but more importantly, it's what is central. To the catechism. Of course, we haven't done it here with my person, but you've all gone through this before in coming to Lord's Day 23, that you've gone through the Apostles' Creed. And so you've looked at the grace of God, the wonderful message of salvation that has come our way through Jesus Christ. You've also witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit in the gathering of his church. But then the question arises, what does it mean for us if we don't understand the truth of this? The truth that's embedded in what we've come to confess. Then we're lost. And we may say that many people today are lost. Our catechism, therefore, asks a very important question that we need to ask in regards to what the Apostles' Creed teaches us. 
Namely, it asks the question, what does it help us? What does it help us now that we believe all this? And the answer it gives is straightforward, to the point, in Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. Of course, that begs the question, how? How are you righteous before God? So we've, we may say we've come to a central question in asking that. We need to know the only true answer, in fact. If we're to continue on in the comfort, on that one and single road that leads to salvation, we need to know how. How are we righteous before God? The one true answer is needed in congregation. There are many suggested answers that we have to deal with. But we have to come to the one that counts. And that's our purpose here this afternoon. We want the right answer. And let us look closely at that congregation and see things in the light of, of Scripture, not in the light of how men interpret it. I proclaim to you then this afternoon the word of our Lord as we find that summarized in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, under the following theme and heads. Our righteousness before God can only be by true faith in Jesus Christ. First, then, we'll look at the point, although we are sinners, has to come to the second point, God imputes to us the perfection of Christ. So our righteousness before God can only be by true faith in Jesus Christ, although we are sinners, one, two, God imputes to us the perfection of Christ. Although we are sinners, it's often difficult for us to let go of what we are by nature, the unbeliever does not desire to come to God. He set his focus on getting out of life the things that please him. Indeed, he has no time for God. A statement has often been made, according to the canons of Dort, Reformed people believe that God saves some but leaves others in their sins. And people often trip over that by saying, does that not make God unfair? And so they show how arrogant they are when it comes to the question of sin. They accuse God of being unfair, even as they do not in the least intend on serving him. And there, there they show their true colors. And our catechism says that those colors, what those colors are when it professes, that we are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. And we say that, we've said it so often, you've heard it so often, but what does it really mean for you? The reason I ask is because I do not think that everyone considers what that means. Prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. Well, it means exactly what it says. We have made the choice to stand against God, and the result is that we want nothing to do with Him any longer. That's according to our nature. If God therefore leaves us in our sin, then we are left to where we really want to be. And you can hear that. You can hear that with people. You suggest God to them, they laugh. 
and they talk about, well, they don't use very nice terms. I don't even like to use that about who God is. But they have no fear of saying that. In fact, they, they kind of relish that, to be able to mock God and, and not be struck down by lightning or so. Shall they complain if bypassed by God's grace, whereby he plucks some from the hellfire, if one so despises him? You see, there's no one that's ever dragged kicking and screaming to hell because in life they demonstrated they didn't really want to go there. They wanted to go to heaven. There's no one like that dragged into hell. There's no such person. But we're sinners. And when when we acknowledge that, we also acknowledge we're prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. And we have to see exactly what that means. Of course, there are also others. Some hear the truth of Scripture concerning Jesus Christ. The fact that he's the only author of our salvation. But because of that old nature, they can't completely let go of that thinking process which says, I have to do something to earn my salvation. With Lord's Day 11... We ask the question, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer that was given was, no, though they boast of Him in words, though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true, either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. Apostle Paul in his day was confronted by the same question. There were the Judaizers, those men who said yes to Jesus, but who at the same time said that what was true of the Old Testament still counted as well. What they defended was that a person still had to be circumcised if he was to be a true believer. In other words, they insisted that the bloodletting foreshadow had to remain even as the one who had put an end to that bloodletting had come. Then Paul said to the Philippians, watch out for those dogs, those men who are evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we, the church, who are the circumcision. In other words, the truly clean. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So you see, there is much resistance against the truth that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is, or was, either outright rejected, not only by the heathen world, also by his own people, And there are those who say they believe in him who still in the end believe that they have a part to play in the securing of their salvation. Then it's important, congregation, that we understand what Lord's Day 23 has to say. 
For the test may be taken, which says, Tell me what you think about man's righteousness before God, and I will tell you whether you are a Pharisee or the Roman Catholic, an Anabaptist, an Arminian, or Reformed. You see, that's where we're at with Lord's Day 23. When we say it's central. We're here this afternoon, brothers and sisters, to say in the words of our confession that the question of righteousness is a very important question that we need to understand. We need to know where we're at with that. If we're going to do justice to understanding what God would teach us in His Holy Word. We're here only for one reason. And that is to say in the words of our confession that my righteousness is based completely on someone other than myself. Completely. But then look closely once again as to what that entails. Read it again, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, and say to yourself, as to your confession, I may speak of my righteousness before God being a reality only if I understand that I in myself, in my person, am a sinner from top to bottom. You see, that's the glorious life-saving truth that God has revealed to the sons of men. I'm totally depraved because that is where my sins have placed me. There is not one redeeming quality in any of us by which God will ever say, you I will save because you are good. If you think God is looking for such qualities, yes, even if you think God is looking from eternity, as the Arminians believe, to foresee if we have faith, then you're completely on the wrong track of trying to understand how you are righteous before God. You see, we need to be perfect to count, beloved. And who of you is perfect? Who of you has only committed one small sin in life? One teeny weeny sin. If you say yes to that, which I doubt would be correct, then still you do not qualify as being righteous enough for God. Now what does that do? What does that do for you? Does that sadden you to hear that this afternoon, brothers and sisters? Does that momentarily leave you with the thought that you might well be in despair? You see, you should. For that's all important. You have to see that if for a moment you would stand before God as to who you are in yourself, you'd be lost. And that should produce a certain sense of despair in us. I know we don't often linger on that. We don't often 
have that feeling of despair because we know what comes after this. We know the position of Jesus Christ. But sometimes his position is lost on us, congregation, because we haven't fully understood this first point of our, our sermon this afternoon. Namely, that we say to ourselves we are sinners, although we are sinners. It's very important that you understand that as to what it means. From top to bottom, there's not a redeeming quality in our persons, of ourselves, that can save us. And if we say Jesus needs to save, but, but I have to do something too, then congregation, we still are missing the mark. We have to come to what we confess. But we have to understand it then as well. We have to live in that understanding. Not that we have to wring our hands day after day and then all of a sudden be happy again. No, but you do have to understand the seriousness of your sin. You have to realize when you're committing that, what you're doing over against what Jesus Christ came to, to die for so as to save you from. So we come to the second point. God imputes to us the perfection of Christ. We don't have to leave here this afternoon with our so-called tail between our legs. The game is not up. No, for we may understand in light of Scripture that God sent His Son into the world to take on our flesh. And why would God have done that? Why should the eternal Son of God, who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit is God himself, why should he have become man? Was it not that God had a purpose with that? As affected our position before him? Indeed it was. And then we can say it was by grace alone. God is gracious. God has seen our predicament, as you all know, in paradise. He's seen the hopelessness of it. But he hasn't dealt with us as he might have. But he dealt with us in a way that defies understanding in the full sense of things. He showed his grace and mercy. When he said that you will surely die, he didn't say, he didn't slay us, congregation. But he gave a promise, a promise to the woman. Out of her would come the seed. He would be a man. He would be flesh. And he would deliver us. That's God's grace and mercy. We are flesh. He became our flesh. That's the answer. He became like us to save us. God became man. He in our place. When it came to dealing with a God who is angry with our sin daily. 
He in our place to take the curse of God upon our sins. He in our place to secure our position before God the Father. That's all that I need to know. But then I must see that in its fullest extent congregation. I must not minimize who I am as a sinner. All the while trying to impose on on Christ's unique position. I must see his glory. Exactly as I see the seriousness of my sin. And the inability on my part to stand before my heavenly father. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That and only that. Not Jesus and me, but Jesus for me. That is the one and only truth that this world needs to know, needs to understand. For all of the truth that it holds, God saves despite us. Despite us, congregation, despite us, despite us. Can you underline that in your hearts so that it's readily there? By grace you have been saved through faith. That means Jesus is everything and we are nothing when it comes to securing our salvation. We have only to believe it true. And to say it in the words of the catechism is to say it in such a wonderful way. Isn't it? Isn't this one of the most beautiful statements that we can ever hear because of what it all compiles and what it really says? Because it talks about us as we are today. And it's still not favorable. We're always looking to be favorable in God's eyes, but it says, no, no, no. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and that's not just the past, congregation, for it adds, and am still inclined to all evil. That's you, that's me. That's you and me staring at the glorious hope of our salvation. I have sinned against God. And it's as simple and as basic as that. There's no redeeming quality to be sifted out of who I am. I'm totally depraved. Totally unworthy. But that the message has come to me. Yes, has been forced into my heart of stone by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I've come to understand in my changed heart that that body which speaks of the need to be eternally condemned has been salvaged from the dung heap of our existence and made to be favorable in the eyes of the Lord once more. How is it even possible? I cannot fully understand. Miracle of miracles.
But I want to drive it home, congregation, this afternoon. To show exactly how it's not us. That there's nothing in us. But it's all by grace. A father and a mother bring their child to church for baptism. And you may know that many who call themselves Christians will ask, Why are they here? What is that? You say they have come for the baptism of their children or their child? How can this child confess that Jesus is Lord? But then we may say, congregation, that's exactly why they came. Why we're all here. Bringing our children better represents our position than so many who think their position to be. Who do not believe in the baptism of children. You see, our children come with nothing to offer. They can't even speak. But that's exactly where we have to find what is true about all of us. If to ask, how are you righteous before God? It's about what God has promised to do for us in sending us His Son. That's the message of Genesis chapter 3. It's when we stood there shaking with Adam and Eve, wondering what, would God, what God would do in the way of our surely dying. It's then that God spoke His words and changed everything. It's what God promised to do at that moment, congregation. That's the message of the Bible that may not be lost on us. It's a message of blessing for all who live under the covenant promises of God. Both adults and their children alike. There's, no, there's nothing more comforting to hang on to, brothers and sisters, than to know that our God lives and lives with us actively. To know that He expects us to live righteously before Him. And that He has set everything in motion so that we may. He will not have His people unclean. That's the motivation that saves us. He will only have us as a holy nation. This is what He expects of us and our children. God, through Christ, lays claim on us and our children congregation. For Jesus was sent to be the restorer of the covenant we have with God. And that's why we bring our children. And the word of God says you do well to do so. We bring our children because they are born into the covenant. And that's enough. We bring them because by their nature they are disqualified. For the simple reason that they are born. But God says no. You're mine. 
You're holy. And if you're holy, your offspring had better be. And it better be shown that they are as well. And yes, the Bible goes on to say that we must belong to the new birth. The birth that lies in Christ in the shedding of his blood. As symbolized with the water that speaks of, of cleansing for us. And not just as parents, but of our children as well. We are after the water. The symbol of it on the head of our child. As it says, washed, clean, belonging to Christ through the washing of his blood. Even as we know ourselves to be sinners. That we have grievously sinned against all God's commandments. Never kept any of them. And I'm still inclined to all evil. But I belong. And my children belong. Because God has made all things right. In and through Jesus Christ my Lord. Apostle Paul said that he had much to be confident of in the flesh. In other words, he said that the manner of his believing, he belonged to that precious nation of Israel, could very well have served him in thinking that he was one who was worthy of salvation. He said that if good works were what being righteous before God was all about, then he had more to boast about than most. For Paul thought he was a soldier in the service of God all the while he was persecuting those who belonged to Jesus Christ. And then Paul understood that whatever was to my prophet under the Pharisaic thinking, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things that were of importance to me before. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul learned on the road to Damascus that all of what he had worked for in the zeal of doing what, what God wanted him to do, as he thought, it was of no worth. He learned to recognize that man is not saved by anything he would do for reason of salvation. It became rubbish to him of no value. And that's what we need to see as well. We cannot bring the price. But it's that in that situation in which we see Paul that we also say there's where it's at. Is that God stopped him in his tracks. And Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting that church? That's the way to salvation. That's the way that God has chosen for himself a holy people. It's not what you are doing, Paul. But it's what's, what needs to be done for you. And that's how it is with us. 
And then we may see our sin. Indeed, we must. Then we can also say, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me that perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ rendered for me. You see what he's doing. You see what he's giving. He's putting to me so that God can look at at you and me and say, that man is, is perfect. Not that we carry it in ourselves. But it's put to our credit. Imputed. Through Christ. He ascribes to me. He assigns to me. All those qualities. That in reality only belong to Jesus Christ. And he gives them to me. And then looks at me. As if I myself. Had accomplished what what Jesus has done for me. Yes he looks at you and me. And he sees us. As if we were Jesus. Because congregation. That's what it's all about. It's about restoring us to himself. That God has done this wonderful thing through Jesus Christ. And then all that you and I have to do. All we have to do is believe it's true. And for that he sends his Holy Spirit. To make it a reality in our life. It's wonderful congregation. To look at Lord's Day 23 and 24 and realize that except we know what it says here, we, we cannot possibly understand what we've, we've read before in our catechism. The points about God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or that we, we go on from here to, to deal with prayer. To deal with the commandments of God. We can't possibly understand. How to get through that. Except we understand. That God has chosen us. In Christ. For salvation. Paul gives us the answer we need to carry on our lips. We need to feel in our heart. And let us say it with him as much as in saying these words. Paul wants it to be our confession as well. Say it. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained all this or have already been made perfect, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's where it's at. For which he took hold of us, God's covenant people, we and our children. Oh, yes. It has to come to faith. Indeed, it does. But God provides. For his people. 
all things. He provides the faith. And that we are to be obedient. We are to instruct. We are to tell our children this wonderful truth of a God who's there, who's, who's in covenant with us, who has sent His Son to be the one to restore that covenant so that it could work, work to perfection. He has covered in the sight of God all our sins. He's imputed to us what belongs to Christ. And so we stand before him, we and our children, a holy people, and not because of what lies here, of ourselves, but because of what Christ has covered us with in presenting us righteous and holy to the Father. Amen.